Let's turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 4 for our study this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths that are in your word, especially in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. These are powerful truths. These are great truths. We just ask that we would experience them, that we could enjoy your rest, enjoy your peace, experience the power of the word in our lives, to come to your throne room of grace. I pray that you would meet each of us in the way that we need it this morning. You would touch and encourage our hearts. Would you move through the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name? Amen. Rest and peace can be hard to come by. I think everyone is looking for rest and peace. Believers, unbelievers, part of the human experience is, where can I get a little bit of peace? Where can I get a little bit of rest? We look for it in a variety of places. We look for it sometimes in possessions, in a car, in a house, in money, in financial stability, but yet there's still a longing in our hearts for rest and, and peace. Sometimes it's in position or recognition. If I could just get this job, if people would just recognize me, if they could see what I'm doing, sometimes that manifests itself even in how we serve inside of the church. But ultimately, it still leaves us longing if that's our motivation for for rest and peace. Sometimes it's just, I need a vacation. If I could just get a little bit of a break right now, I would have rest and peace. I think this is a timely message for this time of year. It's a stressful time of year, isn't it? Trying to get all the things done, going to all the, the Christmas parties and running here and there. We can many times find ourselves lacking rest. We can find ourselves lacking peace. And so that's the title of our message this morning is rest. That's what God is calling us into, his rest. And this is what we understand is real rest is only found in Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with homes and cars and vacations, but if we're looking to those things to supply this emptiness inside of us, we'll always be left longing for more. But if we find our rest in Jesus Christ, we can enjoy the blessings that he does provide for us. St. Augustine, a very famous and well-read author, wrote a book called Confessions, and this is what he said. He said, our hearts are restless till they find that rest in thee. And isn't that true? Our hearts are restless till we find our rest in Jesus Christ. As we go through this text, there's going to be three main things that we focus on. The first is the promised rest, then it's the living and powerful word, and then finally it's the great high priest. But all three of those things tie into one theme, and that's the rest of the Lord. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. Let us fear, let us fear any of you seem to have come short of it. The time frame in which is being referred is when the children of Israel travel through the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, out of deliverance. They come to the promised land, come to the Jordan River, and through unbelief, they don't trust God. The consequence is they don't get to come into the promised land. They don't get to come into the rest that God had provided. And we're warned in the same way God's saying, I've got a rest for you, and be careful lest you come short of it. So this is the first point. It's that the promise remains. The promise of rest remains for us. 
It's God's will, it's God's desire for us to be at a place of rest and peace. What causes us to fall short of it? What caused this generation to fall short of it? Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They couldn't come into the rest because of unbelief. We don't come into God's rest because of unbelief. The context of Hebrews is extremely important. What's the church going through that's receiving this letter for the first time? They're Jewish Christians, Jewish believers that are being tempted to go back under the law, to trust in their works in order to receive salvation, unbelief. Once that mentality comes into your heart and your mind, you're never going to experience the rest of the Lord the way that God intends because your salvation is dependent upon you instead of dependent upon Christ. So you have peace with God because you had a good week and you fulfilled your system of works. But then you have a bad week and you failed and all of a sudden you're wondering if, if God loves you. The way that we fall short of God's rest and peace is when we start to operate with God on a works base instead of his grace. His salvation, grace, blessing, mercy comes into our lives through faith, not through our works. And we slip into this. Maybe you're thinking God's going to bless your life because you've really been diligent at reading your Bible this year. Or God's going to bless your finances because you've been faithfully tithing. Or God's going to really move in your family because you've been fasting and praying. And God's going to go, well, here's your crumbs. Here's your crumbs that I'm giving to you because you're on a works-based relationship with me. God's waiting for us to get to that place of going, Lord, would you move in my life by your grace. And we respond to that grace by desiring to give, by desiring to read our Bible. But we shouldn't be reading our Bible and giving and serving, trying to earn or deserve his favor. So it's unbelief in the goodness of God that keeps us from experiencing his rest and coming short of that. In verse 2, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The gospel literally means good news. So what was the good news that was preached to this group in the wilderness? That God desired to give them the promised land. Joshua and Caleb come back as spies and they say, I know that we appear to be grasshoppers in their sight, but God has promised this to us. He's good. He's faithful. We need to trust his, his goodness. We need to look at his faithfulness, not our inadequacies. They heard that message of good news, but notice they didn't mix it with faith. So the hearing of the good news was unprofitable. This is sobering and it hit me, is that this time this morning can be absolutely meaningless, can be unprofitable if we don't respond to the word in faith. When we're reading God's word on our own, it cannot be effective. There can be no benefit. There can be no fruit from it if we read it and it's not mixed with faith. It's not going to mix with trusting in God's, God's faithfulness. It's important to trust the Lord. Trust brings us into rest, doesn't it? When you're trusting, you're resting. In a good, healthy human relationship, in a good, healthy marriage, in a good friendship, there's trust that brings rest. If you can't trust your spouse, you're not going to experience a lot of rest inside of that relationship. 
If you can't trust a friend, you're going to have a hard time experiencing peace inside of that relationship. And us entering into rest that the Lord has for us has everything to do with trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, what does it say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. It's that trust. It's that mixture of faith. In verse 3, for we who have believed do enter the rest as he has said. So there's a contrast to the believer. The believer has entered into this rest because he's responded in faith to the good news. We have the rest of the Lord. The rest of the Lord is rooted in our salvation, is rooted in receiving God's grace. We're not like this generation who has unbelief. We're not like this generation who's wandered in the wilderness. We've believed, and through believing, we've entered into that rest. Continuing verse 3, So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundations of the world. God, in his righteous anger, he says to this generation, you're not coming in to the promised land. Notice what he says, maybe underline it, my rest. What God is inviting us into is actually his rest. And this is what we ultimately long for. This is the void that's inside of us that we're trying to fill in so many ways. It's not just that God is inviting us into rest, peace, tranquility, lots of sleep, lots of that kind of thing. He's, re- he's inviting us into relationship with him, into the rest that he enjoys. What's your view of God when it comes to rest? He's at a position of rest. Never in scripture do we see God stressed out. Never do we see him wondering what he's going to do, being overwhelmed. Christ died for our sins. He's risen again. It is finished. The work for salvation is complete. Christ is returning. God knows how this whole thing is going to wrap up and he's at a position of rest. And he's speaking to us saying, I want you to enter into that. I want you to enjoy that. I want you to be at that place of rest, not on your works, but on my faithfulness. Enter into that place. For the children of Israel, the works were finished from the foundation of the world. God had already prepared the promised land for them. All they had to do was walk in by faith. How did God win the first victory? Walk around Jericho once a day, this massive walled city. Then the last day, shout and yell and blow your shofars, these ram's horns, these trumpets as loud as you can. And God just brought down the walls. It was God's work. They simply had to trust it. It was from the foundations of the world but they didn't have the faith to step into that, that generation before Joshua. God was ready to give them gracious gifts, things that they didn't deserve. God was declaring, I've got houses for you that you didn't build. I've got vineyards that you didn't plant. I've got orchards that you didn't wait all of those years for the trees to get to the age of maturity. We have an appreciation for that in Colorado. It takes forever for trees to grow here, doesn't it? Hey, plant a tree in your yard. I hope you're planning on living there for 15 years because you might then get some shade or some benefit out of that tree. If you live out in Falcon or Peyton, good luck, 25, 30 years to get a tree to grow, grow out there. And here's Israel. They're walking into vineyards and they're, they're, they're ready to go. The grapes are there. Immense fruit. 
orchards. It's there, houses that are already built. It was, it was done before the foundations of the world. They simply needed to trust and then walk in obedience based on that faith and based on that, that trust. In verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. In these next few verses, God's giving us examples of his rest. And one of these examples is the Sabbath day. The other is the promised land. The Sabbath day, the seventh day, God rested after he created the world in six days. Why did he rest the seventh day? Well, he was tired. I mean, that's a long week. He created a whole lot of stuff. And he's like, wow, I need, I need a break. What do you think? Absolutely not. He wasn't tired. He wasn't wore out. He didn't need a break. He wasn't exhausted. He didn't even break a sweat in creating the universe. He just spoke it and it was into existence. He rested to show us that he is in a place of rest. This is, again, the emphasis of my rest. He rested from all of his works. It's, it's his rest. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, and the nation of Israel was asked to observe it in the Old Testament. And then how does that apply to New Covenant, New Testament believers? Are we required to, on the seventh day, do no work. The seventh day is when the sun goes down Friday to when the sun goes down Saturday, a 24-hour period. And is this what God would desire? We don't find that. In the, the new covenant, what we find is that this one day of rest was pointing to who? It was pointing to Jesus. In Colossians 2.16, it says that the Sabbath was a shadow of Jesus Christ. So this rest that God enjoyed on the seventh day, the Sabbath that the nation of Israel observed, it points us to the rest that we can have in Jesus Christ 24-7. So why would we embrace the shadow? We would want to embrace the substance. Say, for instance, Amber goes out of town for one week, and it's in the summertime. Woe is me for that one week as I'm taking care of the four kids by myself. I know you can feel sorry for me. Not really. Amber does it all the time while, while, while I'm working, right? But the house goes into chaos when mom is gone. Ladies, moms, you're amazing. It's phenomenal. So she finally gets back and, and here she is. And the kids, it's a miracle. They're still alive. They're clothed. They, they were fed. Maybe not bathed, but they're alive. We made it through. And here she comes walking on the sidewalk to the front door. And because it's a sunny day, there's the shadow, and I start embracing her shadow, kissing her shadow. So good to see you. We just didn't make it. You'll never believe what we've been through. Could you please make dinner tonight, you know? <laughs> no, my neighbors would think I was mad. Like, what, what happened? We need to get Eric some help, right? And the Sabbath day points us to Jesus and the rest that we find in Jesus Jesus completed the work so that we can rest and enjoy the favor and the grace of God. Is it wise to have one day a week that you unplug from your work and focus on the Lord? Absolutely. Is it this religious thing that you have to do it on Saturday? No, it's not. Don't miss the point of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is Jesus Christ and the rest that he offers and provides. And verse 6 since therefore it remains that some must enter in, 
And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. The rest remains. Why weren't they able to enter into the rest? Because of unbelief. And the unbelief led to disobedience. Unbelief's always going to lead to disobedience. If I believe God's word, if I truly believe it, I'm not going to dis- disobey it. In verse 7, again, he designates a certain day saying in David, today, after such a time as it's been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is Psalms 95 that's quoted frequently in Hebrews 3 and 4. It's an emphasis on this moment, on this day, that we would enter into God's rest, that we would enjoy his peace, that we wouldn't harden our hearts and slip away from the gospel and begin to trust in our own works, that we would rest in his goodness and his faithfulness in the midst of the trials that we face. In verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterward have spoken of another day. Christ is throughout the scriptures, including the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And even though Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, he pointed to even a greater rest. The promised land, Israel, is again pointing to, foreshadowing the rest that Jesus Christ brings us into. In the Greek, it's the same word that we translate into two names, Jesus and Joshua. Joshua was showing us how Jesus would lead us into the promises of God. Church, I think this is going to set you free. I think you know it up here. I know it up here, but a lot of times we don't embrace it in our hearts and live it. What brings you into the promise of salvation? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what brings you into the promise of salvation. What brings you into the promises of Scripture? It's faith in Jesus Christ. But we get it backwards. And we start thinking, you know what? Well, salvation came into my life through faith, but everything else in in my life is going to come through works. No, it doesn't. What place then do works have? They have a place. Works are important. Holiness is important. But it's a response to God's grace. It's living in his grace, his grace living through our lives, not something that we're trying to earn or deserve his promises. Try it out. Say, God, I want to be used by you, and you promise to fill us with your spirit so we can be witnesses. So by faith, I'm accepting that promise, and I pray that you would use my life in a way that would surprise me and glorify you. That's far different than going, you know what? I've got my wrap down. I've got my act together. And so, Lord, would you use me? What, what are we saying? We come into the promises of God by our works. No, we come into the promises of God through faith and trusting in the Lord. Joshua spoke of a future rest that would come, the rest that Jesus would bring us in. The Sabbath points to rest in Christ. The promised land points to rest in Christ. In verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Praise the Lord. There's rest for you. Church, there's rest for you. In the joy of your salvation and also the burdens that we face, I know everybody's got a burden. Something that you're thinking about. Maybe you're having a hard time focusing on the message because of the burden that you're thinking through. It's weighing on you. It's hard. You're having a hard time sleeping. Go to bed, you're tired, 10, 10, 30. But for some reason, the mind won't shut off. 11, 30, 12, 30, 1, 30. 
had a few nights like that this week. You drink coffee at late in the day and it gets worse. And all of a sudden the hamster wheels like going twice as fast as it should. Your mind just and here's the Lord saying, I've got rest for you. I've got peace for you. Trust me. Give it over to me. It's not going to be you that does this. But let me have this. It's God's will to provide rest for us. It's God's will for us to be at a place of peace. Don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that our life will always be restful and the lack of tribulation and the lack of difficulty. It means that there is a peace and a rest in the midst of that difficulty. A peace that surpasses our understanding. God very rarely comes and says, okay, here's a peace because I'm going to let you know how all this is going to work out. He comes to us and says, I've got this. Do you trust me? Will you receive the peace that bypasses your understanding? There remains a rest for God's people. Verse 10, for he who had entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So it's not works that brings us into the rest of God. It's a ceasing from works when it comes to this understanding of how do I enter into God's rest. It's a trusting in Christ for salvation. If this church moves back to a works-based theology, they've missed the rest of God. We cease from our works when coming to believe of how God's blessing comes into our lives. Again, we've already talked about where works do fit in. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This is one of those verses of paradox. Let us therefore be diligent. That sounds like work really hard to enter into that rest. Work really hard so that you rest. You're kind of left going, how do I be diligent to make sure that I come into that rest? What's this verse saying? Be diligent that you trust in God. You trust in his goodness, to trust in his faithfulness so that you enter into that rest, so that we don't come to that same example of obedience. I really was excited to do this whole chapter this morning because I wanted to test your endurance. No. The reason I was excited to teach the whole chapter is because it goes together. It goes together. I've heard so many sermons on verse 12 that are absolutely phenomenal, but verse 12 fits into the first 11 verses. I know that's mind-blowing, isn't it? So the reason that God's word is living and powerful is it's the provision to lead us into rest. It's the answer to our unbelief. Unbelief's the problem. And so how does God deal with the unbelief? Through the power of the word. So in these following verses, we're going to see how God practically brings us into his rest. For the word of God is living and powerful. Amen? It's living. It's living. This is the only book that's living. Throughout all of history, there's life here. When someone reads the scriptures and they trust in Jesus for salvation, they're born again. They go from death to life. Resurrection power, there's life here. What happens when a husband and wife fall in love with Jesus? They get in his word, they start believing it. There's life. God takes a marriage that is hell on earth and he begins to bring life inside of that marriage. What happens to a 17-year-old 
that wants nothing to do with God, that's rebelling against their parents, that's getting in as much trouble as possible, when they get into the word of God and the word of God gets inside of them, there's life there. Amen? There's power here. Spurgeon said this, that the word of God is like a roaring lion. You don't need to try to defend it. You need to simply let it out of its cage. Let God's word out of its cage. Let God's word do that work in your heart and your life. As we do battle unbelief and there's struggle in our flesh, how is our sin dealt with? How's our unbelief dealt with? Through the power of God's word. We believe in the power of God's word here. That's why we dedicate our time to it. Saturday night, Sunday morning, going through the word. Wednesday nights, going through the whole entire Bible. This Wednesday, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. We're pumped about it. Looking forward to it. God's word's powerful. Men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry. We've got this crazy idea here that kids can learn the Bible. Do you know in the children's ministry from first grade to fifth grade this morning, they're studying the book of Hebrews. You can ask your kids, hey, what did you think about about Hebrews? They're going to talk about rest this morning. They're going at a little slower pace. The next week, they're going to look at the power of God's word. I've met a lot of people, and I don't know anybody that has greater passion and commitment for the power of the word than Deb Rumsey, our children's ministry director. You want to change lives? Go teach the Bible in the children's ministry. Go get a volunteer application. Say, I don't ever want to see a class close their RMC. This isn't just childcare. This is the biggest mission field that we have because God's word's powerful. These junior hypers at our church, they get to hear the word of God. So exciting. The imprint is just so fresh. I don't even think they know which way is north and south. You could go into there and go, hey guys, which way is north? You know? They're fresh. They're ready to receive the word of God the power of God's word. Get in it. Share it with others. It's living. It's powerful. It's what we believe in as a a church family. Notice its work. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Remember, the context is unbelief. What kept them from going into God's word? It was unbelief. So the word of God, it deals with our unbelief. It cuts us apart. It reveals our sin. It's a two-edged sword. It's powerful. The way that it's powerful is it divides between soul and spirit. We know we have a soul and a spirit, but where does your soul end and your spirit begin? Can you divide the two? Do you know when it's your spirit and when it's your soul? The spirit is the spiritual essence of a person. But then the soul is the emotions, the thoughts, and the will. It's impossible for us to divide the two. But God's word is such an exacting surgical knife that it goes in and it can divide the soul and the spirit. It can divide the joints and, and the marrow. How do we divide that? How would the ancient world know of the complexity of the human body? We know so much of the joints and the ligaments and the marrow because of all of the technology that God has blessed us with. The ancient world would look at this and go, how in the world would you know what's inside of the the human body in this way? But it's an illustration of how God's word can divide. A discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How may this look? So you have a thought, but underneath that thought is an intent. And sometimes that intent is right. And sometimes that intent is absolutely wrong. It's selfish, it's prideful, 
and other times it's motivated with the glory of God. And God's word's so powerful that sometimes God comes to us through his word and says, that's the right idea, but it's the wrong intent of the heart. How could we even divide that inside of ourselves? How could we even know that inside of ourselves if it wasn't for the word of God? Go for it with the word of God. Go for it with the word of God. Not out of legalism, not trying to earn or deserve his favor, but as the best tool on the planet to bring us into the rest of God. Enter into that surgical table and allow the Lord to do his work. Commit to being in the word. Commit to to reading the gospels. Read the whole entire Bible. Indulge yourself on the word of God. Go for it. It's powerful. Have you had those moments when God has spoken to you through his word? There's nothing like it. It hurts like crazy. Oh God, I didn't realize how much pride was here. I didn't realize how much bitterness was here. And it's the most painful thing, but it's the most beautiful thing at the same time, isn't it? Sometimes we go, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to go to church this morning because I know they're going to open the word there and I'm going to get convicted. <laughs> and then you go, no, I need to be convicted. I need to hear the word of God. I don't know if I'm going to read my Bible today. I know I'm going to be convicted. No, I need to be convicted. Notice what the word does. It brings this transparency, this nakedness before the Lord. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brokenness comes over us as we're in the word, all for the intent of bringing us into God's rest. God sees, God knows, we can't hide from him. Don't try to hide from him. Bring it to him in brokenness and transparency and honesty, and we will give an account to the Lord. As believers, we will answer to the Lord not to determine whether we're saved or not, but to say, Lord, this is what I've done with the life you've entrusted to me, the life that you've saved me with. Now, please follow the flow here, because once the word of God cuts us in pieces, it brings us to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. We don't see our great need for the great high priest without verses 12 and 13. It's the nakedness, it's the brokenness that brings us into the richness of our great high priest. It's the third thing that we consider, the great high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our confession. It's the third time in the book of Hebrews that Jesus has been declared as the great high priest. Now we find it elaborated on What does it mean that Christ is the great high priest? He passed through the heavens. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. He's victorious. He is the high priest who's ascended. He's the son of God, the only begotten, the beloved. So let us hold fast our confession. Let's continue in faith in Jesus Christ. And knowing that it's through faith that we enjoy the rest of God. This is how we practically on a daily basis hold fast to our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. When you come to your great high priest, it's not that he doesn't understand. He understands to the fullest extent. The word sympathize, it means to suffer alongside with. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. I know this is another profound thing. Just like, you know, verse 14 comes after verse 13, so study them together. 
This is crazy. This is going to blow your mind. Are you ready for it? A temptation is not a temptation unless it's a temptation. Let me say that again. A temptation is not a temptation unless it's a temptation. Some people teach this section of scripture and they go, because Jesus is God, he couldn't be tempted with sin. Sin could never look good to Jesus because he's God. But what does it say here? He was tempted like us. So that means sin actually had to look good in order for it to be a temptation. Yet he didn't give in to sin. So we don't want to take away from this verse on either aspect. Don't say that Jesus wasn't tempted, but also don't make Jesus into a sinner. Don't think that he committed sin because he was tempted with sin. We then understand that temptation's not the sin, but it's giving into temptation that's the sin. So when we come to our high priest, he knows exactly what it's like to be tempted. He was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. Satan comes and tempts him while he's alone. It wasn't the only time that Jesus was tempted, but that's an example in scripture. How did Jesus overcome that temptation? By quoting the word of God out loud. Small sections of scripture out loud, giving us an example, but not only providing the example, but being a person, our savior, a high priest that we can run to when we're tempted. Bear with me for a few moments because this is going to be a little bit challenging. It brings up a point of pain in our state. Colorado, unfortunately, has had way too many mass shootings. Way too many young men that have decided for a variety of different reasons that they were going to come into a place where there's a group of people and just start killing people. Innocent people. People that they, they didn't know. That's a temptation I can't sympathize with. I just don't understand it. You probably don't understand it either. What goes on inside of someone that they get to a place where they think it's a good idea, something they desire to go and kill a whole bunch of people. But Jesus understands that temptation. That's a reality of this verse. As every temptation, he understands that he can sympathize with. But for sake of illustration, if you had a half gallon of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream... I can relate to the temptation of eating that whole thing (laughs) in one sitting. Even a greater temptation, boulder chips. Have you tried those suckers? They are good. When I start on a bag of those, might as well just do the whole thing. See, that's a temptation that I can can sympathize with, a temptation that I have given, given into. So Christ, he understands. Sometimes we let ourselves off the hook when it comes to temptation because we say nobody understands. If you grew up in the house that I grew up in and you went through what I went through, man, God's heart is broken. You should have never gone through that. It was never God's, God's intent. But he does understand the temptation that you now go through because of the environment that you, you grew up in. Some of you say, you know, I read the scriptures on how God wants me to treat my spouse, but you don't know my spouse. Man, if you knew my spouse, you'd have homicidal tendencies too, you know? It's like, I don't don't know your spouse. I don't know if I want to know your spouse, but God understands. He sympathizes. He, He understands. And so it's from that perspective that verse 16 comes into play. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we come to the throne? Boldly. 
not occasionally, not timidly, not, I don't know if I should be here, but boldly. How could we come into the Holy of Holies, God's presence, boldly? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus is bringing us into rest. Because Christ is bringing us into grace. Come boldly. You don't need an appointment. You don't need someone else to pray for you. You don't have to have the right words. You definitely don't need to use these and thous. Talk the way you would normally talk and bear, bear your heart to God. Of all of the ways that God could describe his throne, he gives his throne a title here. Throne of grace. Throne of holiness. Throne of power. Throne of justice. Throne of judgment. All of those things are true of God's throne. But the thing that he wants us to know as his children about his throne is it's a throne of grace. It's a throne of mercy. It's a throne of help in time of need. When Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. One man, one day a year, could go into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died, he said, it's open access. You don't come by your works. You come by faith in the grace of God. But grace is hard to receive. God, I want to fix this. I want to do this. I want to provide for this. I want to bring myself into this place of rest. And God's saying you can't. It's got to be through grace. Grace is a gift that's given to us that we don't deserve. We deserve judgment and God gives grace. What's mercy? God withholding the judgment that we deserve. So God, I deserve this. This would be the consequence that I would get. And the Lord says, here it is. How do you overcome temptation? You go to the throne of grace. You hold on to Jesus. And in faith, ask for that grace and mercy in that time of need. The throne room is open and available to us. There's three actions from Hebrews 4. And I think that they're crucial on a daily basis in our Christian life. And the first is enter his rest. Every day, there's an opportunity to enter into his rest through faith. We don't have to live in that place of fear and anxiety. We can live in that place of rest. And then the second is, enter into the surgical table. A lot of times, in order to get into the rest, we've got to get onto the surgery table, the great physician. Every time I've had a surgery, I've had a few in my life, I had to make an appointment. I had to schedule it had to trust the surgeon, trust the anesthesiologist. First time you go under anesthesia, you're like, I sure hope I wake up. Kind of a skinny guy, don't give me too much. You know? <laughs> I'm going to stay awake as long as I possibly can. And then bam, you're, you're out. You got to make an appointment, gang. No one can do this for you. No one got you to church here this morning on your own. You made a choice to be here. You made a choice to allow God's word to do the work. Nobody can open this for you. No one can do it. There's surgery that God wants to do in our lives because he loves us, but we got to put some time here. We got to let the surgical knife do the work, enter into the surgical table. And then the last thing, and I think it's the most important, is enter into his throne room. Go to his throne room frequently and often. Are we strangers at the throne of grace? Doesn't it seem in some way that there's a little bit of an injustice that God would do all this for us? Say, all you need to do is come. Come in faith. Come broken. Come naked. Come tore apart. Just come. I need you to come. 
I need you to trust me that I'm willing to give you the grace and mercy in time of need. How many times is God just waiting and saying, just come to me, just come to me. Are you tired yet? Are you wore out yet? Are you out of answers yet? Just come. I'm gonna read the words of Christ to us as we close. And if you would just go to an attitude of prayer and close your eyes and meditate upon the words of Jesus as I read this to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we thank you for your invitation, and we come. Lord, we are tired of laboring and carrying burdens. We lay those down for your yoke to walk with you. We claim your promise in your word that you give grace and mercy and help in time of need. You know the particular situations, struggles with sin, difficulties that we need grace and mercy in our lives. Would you help us to enjoy your rest today, this afternoon? May there be more days in our lives where we're abiding in your rest abiding in your goodness than wandering in the wilderness. God, thank you for your people. Would you meet them? Would you bless them? In Jesus' name, amen.